Welcome to From the Booth, a podcast where we talk about the films playing at BYU's International Cinema. This is our fifth podcast for fall semester 2020. My name is Marie-Laure Oskerson, Assistant Director of International Cinema, and I'm joined here today by Doug Weatherford, co-director at IC and professor in the BYU Spanish Department, and George Nelson, who teaches in the BYU Theater Arts Studies Department. Professor Nelson is an award-winning director. He has directed over 60 films, plays, and musicals at BYU and in other venues. His latest directing projects include Little Shop of Horrors, Microburst Theater, Mary Poppins, A Second Birth, Beauty and the Beast. Welcome to From the Booth to both of you. Thank you so much. This week, we're discussing 16 Bars, a 2018 documentary by Sam Bathrich. 16 Bars is part of the Voice and Suffrage series at IC this semester, along with other titles that you will be able to stream mid-November. We have two Arabic language films coming up, so mid-November, The Cave, and a feature film as well about women's experience during the Algerian War and the Kosovo War. So I look forward to these films that are all three directed by women and important voices of women during the war. Now, a fair warning here, as we may be discussing plot issues from the documentary. This is a spoiler issues for anyone who maybe has not seen the documentary yet, and maybe we should take this screening later on after our podcast. So 16 Bar is giving a voice to inmates in a Virginia jail. It centers on Speech Thomas, an American rapper and musician. He's a member of the hip-hop group Arrested Development. Speech describes hip-hop as almost like scripture and having spiritual qualities for people in his community and the power to transform and express feelings that are difficult to express. He sees music as a way to communicate to many on the planet that way. So speaking their voice, doing their music, the documentary centers on four inmates. We have Anthony, Teddy, Davon, and Garland. We follow in their music endeavors as they are awaiting trials. We hear their stories through that workshop. This is part of a voluntary program at their jail designed to help with re-entry, successful re-entry in society and reduce relapse rates. All these inmates are dealing with addiction to, to drugs and other, other things. George here has worked extensively with the reentry programs around the nation. And as we hear that about 44%, I think in 2011, of recently released people will be back in jail or prison before the end of their first year out, George, what is your opinion on the importance of rehabilitation and those programs like the one that is portrayed in 16 Bars? I think we get everything a little bit mixed up. We call it rehabilitation, but for the most part, it's, it needs to be a habilitation. Because to say I'm going to rehabilitate somebody, I'm going to put them back in a place that they, a better place. Well, for some of these people, especially in this film, uh, they came from terrible backgrounds. Their life skills, their ability to to make it in the world is ju just doesn't exist. And so we have this kind of misnomer of a rehabilitation. And so I like to focus on the fact that we need to habilitate. 
there are skills that need to be learned in order for a person to make it on the outside when they've been incarcerated. And for the most part, we're not even addressing that. And what are some of those skills that you see are essential in order for former prisoners to have a successful experience as they leave the walls of the prison? Well, the first skill they need to have is the ability to understand the emotions of themselves and others, to have empathy for other people. So often they see their victims as just somebody that has something they want and they can just take it without any understanding of what that's going to do to their lives. They don't want anybody to do the things to them that they want to do to somebody else. And so they're lacking empathy. They're lacking understanding the consequences of their choices and decisions. They're lacking skills to control their anger and, and to be able to, to take a decision and to push it off for a little while so they don't need an immediate response, an immediate positive response to something they're doing to be able to defer gratification. And we see this in one of the inmates' experience, Teddy. We see that he was released before the filming of the documentary, but then he comes back to record with speech. We see as well his struggles trying to adjust to society and his failure. At the, at the end of the documentary, he is away from his community because that's where he can find drugs and he wants to, we, we understand his struggle with, with drugs and not wanting to be a, a user, but he's on the streets in Florida. So the documentary is a, is a very honest look as well at the issues that, that we're dealing with, looking at the re-entry of former inmates. So teaching skills is important. What has been your experience teaching inmates theater skills? What do you think you achieved? And I know that you train as well teachers on how to most effectively teach in the jail setting. Well, the thing that we need to understand first and foremost is the majority of criminal offenders, not all, of course, but the majority of them have had a terrible experience with traditional education. They failed at it. They've been put in courses and classes and all these kinds of things uh, from the time they're little kids in kindergarten, and they are not taught in a way that they learn. And so the educational system and the power of learning to change them, to bring them out of the situations that they're born into, just isn't available to them because they're not taught in a way that makes sense. In my research, I work on, on giving learning style tests to these offenders and Upwards of 75% of them share the exact same learning style, which is scary. When you look at a school or a training program inside of a prison, they look exactly like the ones outside of a prison. And they didn't work before, but somehow we think that now that they're incarcerated, if we do the same thing, it's going to work this time. But we know the result of that is you keep doing the same thing over and over again, you will not get a different result. And so the, the idea is theater is, I'm not having them do theater. Like in this film you're watching, you're having them cut uh, music for them. And so they get this 15 seconds of fame. You know, they, they cut this track and it goes out there. And now for a few minutes, they feel good about themselves. Now, feeling good about yourself is really important because so many of these people have never had that kind of a feeling that comes from doing something positive. But the idea is I've got to teach them the skills to continue that. And so theatrical experiences in and of themselves, these musical experiences in and of themselves do not 
cause the kind of lasting change that we want. And so what I do is I pull apart, I've pulled apart the work of Aristotle in the poetics, and I've taken those very same principles that I use when I'm directing a film or a play, and I say, okay, how do I want my audience to feel about this? How do I want to change the way they look at this and evaluate what they're doing with their lives and see these characters in front of them? And then we teach the trainers inside of the prisons how to use the curriculum that we've designed to be able to take and set up a learning environment where that offender is learning in a way that they see valuable and gaining skills then that they can practice and use in the prison environment and then take them with them outside of the prison and apply them in their lives. George, I, I was wondering if you could uh, tell us a little bit more about the context in which you're working. Uh, I, I'm not sure if you can, but where is it that you're applying these skills and who are the people that you're working with? Are they also inmates? Are they volunteers? Are they students uh, at the university? Great uh, question. Yes. What I'm doing is I am working on all these kinds of fronts. In schools, I'm doing training for teachers to try to help them understand how to reach the non-reachable students. I've written a book called Breaking the Learning Barrier for Underachieving Students, which takes these principles, and I use that when I'm dealing with, with teachers. When I go into a prison setting, I work with the counselors and the teachers that have been hired in the prison to work with the offenders. Some of them are counseling them, working on drug rehabilitation, alcohol rehabilitation, with anger management types of issues. Others are teachers that are helping them get their GEDs or other kind of certifications. And what my whole approach there is, is to try to help them reach out to the students, the offenders, in a discovery-based methodology so that they're not just being lectured to. If you look at this film, you're going to see many times where they bring in an ex-con who sits there and berates these people behind bars there and tells them things they should do, but then doesn't tell them how to do it. Mm -hmm. And so the design of what I've been doing over the years is to break down these skills into tiny little modules and then in a discovery-based model that uses theatrical techniques, not theater per se, but theatrical techniques to engage those learners. Aristotle said nobody's learning anything unless they're being entertained. Hmm. And by that, he doesn't mean that, they're, that their brains, that somebody has to do a performance for them, but what he means is their brains have to engage. Mm -hmm. And so if I now have come from this terrible experience with education my whole life, and I'm now put behind bars and put in an educational program, and it looks exactly the way it did before when it failed, is it going to work this time? As I mentioned, it's not because the offenders shut their brain off. And so we base it on five basic principles that we call nexus teaching. And they use the principles coming out of the theatrical, but again, not in setting up plays so much as setting up a learning environment where somebody's brain begins to engage and see that learning becomes a valuable way out of the situation they're in. George, you, you make quite a statement about the process of educating 
in this country. And, and I'm just wondering, the documentary shows a male prison and four prisoners. It follows four prisoners, all of whom are men, three black and one white. Uh, and I am wondering if in some way our education system has forgotten uh, male students as we've tried to incorporate, you know, more and more uh, women into society. And I'm just wondering if you find that that might be a difference, that female students and male students react differently as you work with them in the prison system, or do you work only with male students? No, I, I work in male and female prisons, probation and parole as well. And what I don't find is I don't find a gender split. What I find is a particular learning style that learns hands-on, that learns experientially, that isn't a very traditional left-brain cognitive kind of learning, but it's more of a right-brained experiential learners. They're the ones that miss out in schools because we don't teach that way. We basically teach in a lecture kind of a format I don't think education has really changed in hundreds of years. You know, I'm doing Zoom classes now at BYU, but that Zoom class is still a lecture quite often. You know, I'll break them into groups. I'll do certain things. But, but even with our technology, the way we approach education is, hasn't changed that much. We think information changes behavior. And it doesn't. Okay, if I if I I can go into a drug rehabilitation program and that those inmates can tell me every single drug, what it will do to you, what harm it will cause, why they shouldn't take it. Okay, and that information doesn't help them. And so somehow I've got to work with them to get them to emotion and emotionally bond with this information. So now that information is just not something they can recite, but it's something that becomes internal to them. So they say, yes, these drugs do this to me, and because it's going to do this and take away from me what I really want, I have to get rid of that so I can get the things that I want. That's the progression that has to happen educationally, and it doesn't happen through lecture. Would you let us know as well about what you feel your success has been in the jail prison world with this method, which is like an amazing uh, way to teach people and to be aware of the, the way to better teach? The recidivism rates, which is the repeat rates, when our program is done the way that it's designed to be done, which is when they do it the way we've trained them to do it, they do it in a discovery-based model, we've had recidivism rates as low as 17%. Oh, wow. And so what we're talking about, and those are long-term recidivism rates, for a period of time, every single offender that was coming out was going into reentry in the state of Missouri. Every single one of those people was going through a program that I designed. What we get, though, I'll give you an example. In the state of Ohio, they were, we were doing the program and we were training people to do it. And the guards that were there kept coming into the room where we were working and kept doing counts and they were totally interrupting what we were doing. And we tried to get to the bottom of it. And here's what they said. This is an educational program and they're having too much fun. These are criminals. They're not to have fun. Mm -hmm. and, and, and you can't get somebody that doesn't understand that unless education has that emotional bond to you, 
unless you're tying it to something that's important to you, it's not going to last. You'll put it in your brain long enough to regurgitate it back so you can get off on parole or whatever, convince somebody. In the prison, They we say you fake it to make it, right? You fake it and then you can get out. And then everybody's so shocked when these offenders go right back to prison, but they're not shocked because all they were doing was mouthing back mm-hmm. to the parole boards and others what they knew they wanted to hear. So info does not change, information does not change behavior. This emotional bond is, is important. I felt like in this documentary, I, I saw a type of healing through the, the rapping and the hip hop that, um, that they're singing. Did you feel like in your experience with theater, looking at a, a little bit away from like the skill teaching that that is essential right for a successful re-entry but more art as therapy what has been your experience and i understand that uh, you're, you're not a trained psychologist but uh, have you seen a change in the people that that you were teaching in uh in the jails and prison settings absolutely because it's it's this idea Again, if you look at that film and you see those moments when those men all of a sudden see they have value, Mm -hmm. when they see they have value, that's the key, okay? And, And when that value is not fake, and that's part of the problem I have with this film, is you give them this fake moment of of fame, but then you don't give them the ability to sustain that. We all need to feel valuable and important and that we have skills that can help the world. Listen to the, the one white inmate in that group. I can't remember his name. Garland. He, Garland. He says, I feel like I have so much to offer. When somebody feels that way and then they don't have the ability to make that happen, then the effect of what you've tried to do with making them feel good, it backfires. Hmm. And so for me, the principle of making somebody feel good is, is absolutely essential. And, and the power of a, of a rising self-esteem is absolutely essential in this educational process because what we invest in education is ourselves. We don't put money into it so much. Yeah, we do. I mean, we pay for things, but... It's ourself. And if we put ourselves into the educational experience and it pays back and there's a constant payback, then things begin to build in a powerful way. Do you mind if I share one experience that I had? I mean, there's, I have many, but uh, I, I'm working in a juvenile prison with gang members. Okay. And they're from all different gangs. And we create this experience where they are to go imaginarily to a desert island. And on this desert island, they're going to live for the rest of their lives. And they can bring one person with them and they can bring one thing with them. And they go to this island and set up and, and we put them together in groups so that they can begin to kind of build some kind of a community. And they talk about who they're going to bring and what they're going to bring. And they talk about the laws they're going to create. Well, this one group on this one training, they decided each of them was going to bring a hoe, a woman, to be a hoe in their whole house, okay? And they're going to build a whorehouse on the beach, and their economy was going to be based on prostitution. 
Well, the, the people I was training were freaking out because I was letting them have this conversation. And I said, just follow this idea out. Let this discovery-based model, trust the questions, trust where this is going. They had for their laws the Ten Commandments, but then they had prostitution as their economy and the abuse and use of women, you know, human trafficking. And so everybody, again, these people I'm training are freaking out. I, I asked them, I just simply asked a question. I said, do any of the Ten Commandments deal with sexual behavior? And a number of them said, oh, no, 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 no. And one young man in that group said, yeah, there's one in there about adultery. And so I said, well, how are you going to square that? And I walked away fully expecting the nine commandments and then their, their world that they're going to set up. When they gave their presentation to the rest of the group, though, they, they had the Ten Commandments and prostitution was gone. And when I asked them to explain to everybody else why, they stopped for a minute and then they said this. Some of our mothers are whores. We don't want this for our children. And in that moment, is there any way that I could lecture that? Is there any way that I could try to convince them that it was wrong to do what they were doing? No, through their own discovery, through their trial and error. My research shows that the majority of criminal offenders know the difference between right and wrong. What they don't know is how to make the right decision in a moment of choice. And so the skills we want to teach them are not that you can make music and that, yeah, we can help. Music can give us the avenue in. Theater can give us the avenue in. But until I can help them to make the kinds of choices where they say, this is what I want, and the only way to get it is to do this thing, which is totally different from what I've done in the past, that's the time when change is lasting in prisons. Wow, this is a very powerful experience and, and how people do learn and they're, they're, have that capacity. The documentary for me just was powerful as an art, as a singing, as, as, a, as a therapy. I listened to the words of the inmates and they sang about social justice, injustice, right, racism, their lives on the street, their drug addiction. They expressed the idea that time was only something that will get them in trouble again. I really had this feeling of hopelessness with them and not being able to get out of the system, being stuck there with them. I listened to a podcast about inmates who were part of an art program in California, and it was specifically theater. And what they said about their art program is that it gave them a feeling of community that was not there before. And they could get lost in a, in a character and learn more about life thanks to their acting. And that it gave them as well an opportunity to look deeper into the, themselves. They said that they were empowered as authors of their stories and that being an author of their own stories, they were able to determine what they wrote. So it was very empowering. Um, it was as well a release of trauma, anger, sad sadness, their hopelessness through through this art. And it really helped me see those inmates with new eyes. It it gave me this this window into their experience. 
So I was wondering how you both coming back to this documentary or your own experience, George, with working in the, the setting of prisons and jails, how does this film specifically humanize inmates? Or how did your experience help you look at inmates with, with more human eyes? Because um, often, you know, they're the villains and they're scary. I can, yeah. I can take that first, if you don't mind. Go ahead, please. Go ahead. And then let you go after that. Yeah, I have more experience with the documentary and you have more experience with the actual uh, service in prisons. So your your voice will be more valuable than mine. But uh, Marilor, I, I felt the same way that uh, this was a really important uh, film for us to see in uh, people as individuals, right? To human, humanize them, as you suggested. I remember one quote that uh, Teddy's mother uh, mentioned and she said yeah, something like, you know the good that is in a person that you love. And you know there is greatness in him, but there are also demons. And uh, I found it quite amazing as you went through this film, how you became to, uh, you began to care more and more about these individuals, and uh, the fact that some of them don't make it in the end, they don't necessarily change their lives. Uh, it is heartbreaking, and like you say, perhaps a little bit. You struggle through the film, I think, because there is a bit of hopelessness. Um, But I'd like to point out as well that uh, not only were the inmates uh, humanized, but I also found myself drawn to all of the other individuals that are kind of uh, along the margins of these stories, right? I mean, we see other prisoners. We see occasional glimpses of the guards. We mentioned the sheriff, uh, who is kind of the person who who began these programs within the Richmond prison system to try and help inmates. The employees, the volunteers, and family members, I was just amazed at how all of these inmates uh, did have familial support. Oftentimes, the fathers were not in the home, or perhaps two of them, I think I remember, that were abused by fathers. So there are uh, generational familial problems, uh, but there's a real strength in the women that are trying to support these inmates and suffering along with them. And that's one of the things I took away from this film was not only the tragedy that is a, a lost life of a person who spends years, sometimes decades in prison, but also the lost opportunities for those that love them. And I was really impressed by uh, Sarah Scarborough, I think was her name. They called her Miss Sarah, right? Mm -hmm. This person who was the program director in this uh, jail and who worked inside and outside the prison with these individuals. And I really took a lot of strength. And then, of course, there's Speech Thomas, but uh, who who does this program, and uh, George, you as well. I take a lot of strength in a hopeless situation from all of the individuals that are trying to help in some way. It's not always successful, perhaps, but that uh, desire to help, I think, uh, was divine in my estimation. I really like that about this documentary. That's the thing about art. Isn't art really, for the most part, about redemption? Um, I look at all the plays that I've directed and written and been involved in, and how many of them have at their core redemption? I look at music and, and the same kind of thing, the feelings that are, are generated from those things. And that is the power, to me, of the theatrical. And I believe in redemption. 
I believe that people can change their lives and become different. I've seen it over and over and over again. The problem that I have is when we try to, again, help people change in ways that aren't really sound, that aren't that don't have backing for them in terms of we have all these ideas that we think will work, and we use those ideas over and over again rather than going back and saying, what is, what's the best practice here? And can we use best practice? And what's the piece that art can have in best practice? Very good. The desire as well that I saw in the inmates that they had to change was very touching to me and witnessing the difficulty of breaking those cycles of addiction, crime and incarceration. And of course, the redemption that everybody around them desires for them. And, and the help that, that they want to bring um, was, was very, very powerful for me. Thank you for joining us today on From the Booth, where specialists and film lovers alike offer discussions of the film streaming at IC every week on our podcast. Please tune in. To get access to the film streaming at IC this semester, please visit ic.byu.edu and follow the link on the splash page to sign up with your current BYU Net ID. Our podcast is produced by the International Cinema Program at BYU and supported by the BYU College of Humanities. We're solely responsible for the opinions and ideas expressed here as they do not represent any official position adopted by the university or its supporting institutions. As always, we thank our producer, Dewey Walter, and our sound engineer, Jojo Ekstrom Pratt, as well as the staff at the BYU Humanities Resource Center for their help and support. Until next week, keep streaming.